Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. The legislative session gets underway next week. Today, we're discussing changes that could be made to Florida laws and how it could affect you. We'll be joined by journalists Mitch Perry and Lynn Hatter to talk about new legislation on carrying concealed weapons, affordable housing, sweeping changes to Florida's education system, and more. But first, I talked via Zoom with Linda Cheney, the state representative for Florida's 61st district in southeastern Pinellas County, about her priorities for the upcoming session. Cheney is a Republican from St. Pete Beach, and this is her second term. Cheney says she's focused on balancing the need to protect the environment and the needs of business. Representative Cheney, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, a lot of things that are coming up. For sure. So I do want to ask about some specific pieces of legislation that you're sponsoring this session. But first, could you briefly outline what your priorities are for the upcoming session? Well, I always um, am looking to balance the needs of business with the needs of our environment. I am an environmentalist at heart and I'm a small business owner. So uh, we need to balance those two. Uh, obvious statement is in Florida, the environment is the economy. So even if you're not an environmentalist, you need to be. Mm. The flip side of that, I guess, is the state is growing so fast from a population basis and with more people, they need places to live. Development can sometimes be in conflict with the environment. So how do you balance that? Um, I think what we're going to find um, that we're going to have to start figuring out how to embrace is um, increased uh, heights and densities to keep people out of harm's way from flooding. I live in uh, St. Pete Beach, and uh, we don't embrace height, building height, and we're pretty much built out on density. Um, yet, you know, we're in danger of some, some pretty significant flooding. There is a bill that I've heard, I have not seen it, that would allow for the first 10 feet to not count towards the height of a building because we're assuming that's, you know, a flooding area. Okay. Um, so that sounds like one way we're going to address it. I, I know that um, many residents aren't really going to be happy with that, but we've got to do something to get people out of harm's way for flooding. So let me come back to the beaches and waterways, which are obviously, as you've noted, they're vital interest to your constituents. One of the bills you're sponsoring would ban certain kinds of balloon releases. Could you talk a little bit about what that bill aims to do? Yeah, the current legislation prohibits the release of more than 10 balloons um, for obvious reasons. They're harmful to our, our animals in the water. They're harmful to our waterways, our beaches. Um, and since I filed the bill, I've had the agriculture community support it because cows, goats, even racehorses have eaten these balloons and have died. So there is a um, a business impact in this case, a direct business environmental nexus. So what this bill is filed as 
banning all balloon re- intentional balloon releases. However, um, I believe it's going to get amended to identify a balloon as litter. So mm-hmm. any amount of balloon, just one balloon intentionally released will be considered litter and folks like keep florida beautiful keep pinellas beautiful have told me that they will promote that to try to educate people that there really is other ways to celebrate besides releasing balloons and that that's harmful and now it's actually considered litter so you don't want to be doing that red tide's been a problem for the beaches in recent years what can you do as a lawmaker to help solve the problem or at least help constituents who are affected by red tide Yeah. Well, I I think everybody knows red tides naturally occurring has been with us, you know, for as long as we've been recording it. Um, What we don't want to do is exacerbate it. Um, And so I filed a bill last session, which passed. It was a grease recycling bill, which would make it easier for local municipalities to stop illegal grease dumping into their sewer systems, which backs the sewer system up, and then the sewage cut ends up getting into the bay, which exacerbates red tide. Uh-huh. So things like that help. Um, we're continuing to do lots of research, fund lots of research on red tide and things that we can do to mitigate, stop. Um, once we've got an outbreak, what can we do to help Uh, reverse an outbreak. So a lot of research is going on in places like Moat Marine. And if your listeners have not been to Moat Marine lately, there is an incredible lab going on there with uh, like 20 different vendors from all over the world with different kinds of technologies that um, they are doing research on to reverse or mitigate red tide without harming the bay. I mean, it's easy to stop something, right? But what's the side effect of it? So a lot of the research that they're doing out there, they actually do it in tanks with the water and with seagrass and with crustaceans, and they see the impact. And once they pass through those level of tests, they take them out into the bay Mm. and they test. Let me ask about erosion. It's a threat to Pinellas County beaches. What's being done to prevent erosion? And uh, do you have some legislation in the works to kind of help some of those beachside communities that are facing some erosion? Um, I've got um, some appropriations filed for living shorelines, Mm -hmm. which is a great way to help with erosion, but that's not always possible. Um, So there's different types of ways to stop erosion. Some of it's going to be hardening like seawalls. Some of it's going to be things like living shorelines, other things, you know, offshore reefs. So there's a combination of things. It depends on where it is that you're trying to prevent the erosion. And um, individual representatives are addressing that in different ways in their communities. And uh, I'm addressing it through some living shoreline appropriations and um, what kind of research comes out of that oyster, uh, mm-hmm. oyster farms and things that are being done through Tampa Bay Watch. Uh, what about beach renourishment? Where does that fit into the picture? Uh, beach renourishment is part of a annual plan. Well, it's a, it's a f- like five to 10 year plan where they rotate, you know, renourishment up and down the beaches. And that continues to be funded. 
I've been working with Pinellas County DEP and the Army Corps to attempt to create um, sand mitigation beds out in the bay that would be created from dredging areas like over in um, Tierra Verde. Mm-hmm. They've got their pass is, is closing in. So as we dredge that out, if we're able to dredge that, let's create a bank that we draw from to re-nourish Pasigril, for instance. So is that like a like an artificial barrier island you're talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. So you're heading into your second term as um, state representative. Are you taking a different approach this time around? Like are there things you learned in the first couple of years that you're you're going to tackle differently this time? Oh my goodness, you, you learn something every single day. <laughs> um, you know, one of the most important things to be successful in the legislature is your relationships and to be able to communicate your priorities in such a way that you get buy-in from your fellow legislators and um, you present it in such a way that's meaningful. So I continue to learn how to do that, develop those relationships, um, as far as my policy goes, I don't really think I veered from that. Um, this session, I'm taking on something new and very big, which is pharmacy benefit managers, PBM uh, reform, mm-hmm. uh, with the intent of reducing drug costs to the consumer and providing more choice for the consumer and supporting our small businesses. So that's a big uh, learning opportunity for me and a great opportunity for our for Floridians. Mm-hmm. It's a Republican supermajority with this group of lawmakers, Democrats, few and far between, but are there some areas of common ground where you think you'll be working across the aisles? Um, school safety has always been an area of common ground. The environment's always an area. Um, land acquisition, like I mentioned, for you know preserving our lands for natural habitats for flood mitigation. There's, I think it's somewhere between 90 and 95% of the bills we pass are actually bipartisan. Mm-hmm. The ones that people hear about are, you know, the the one in 10 that's a, you know, hot button, social hot button issue. And so people get the misperception that it, you know, it's all that way, but really that's few and far between. Well, Linda Cheney, Republican State Representative for Florida's 61st District in southeastern Pinellas County, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. You can find a longer version of this conversation on our website. Cheney talks in more detail about beach renourishment and another piece of legislation she's sponsoring focused on paid family leave. Up next, we'll talk about some of the big changes that could be made to Florida laws and why gun safety and gun rights advocates are unhappy with a concealed weapons bill. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. The legislative session starts on March 7th. Some of the biggest issues up for debate include new rules on carrying concealed weapons, affordable housing, sweeping changes to education, and raising the bar for getting constitutional amendments passed. For more, we're joined via Zoom by Mitch Perry, who covers politics and government for the Florida Phoenix, and WFSU News Director Lynn Hatter. So one bill that's made national headlines is a proposal to allow people to carry concealed weapons without a permit. Supporters of the bill are calling it constitutional carry, 
while opponents say it's a step backwards after some rules around gun ownership were tightened up following the Parkland school shooting five years ago. Mitch, let me start with you. What does this bill actually do? Yeah, this is, as you said, uh, Matthew, setting it up, it's uh, what they call, you know, constitutional carry, the, the uh, supporters do. Permitless carry is what its uh, critics call. And this would allow people to get get a, a gun, basically, without getting a permit. That is actually the situation in 25 states right now in the country, basically. So what you have to do right now is state law requires most gun owners to complete firearms training courses with state certified instructors as part of their applications for concealed carry licenses. But what's interesting, Matthew, in terms of this bill is definitely, you know, leadership is pushing it in the in the Senate and House. So and Governor DeSantis said about a year ago he wanted to see this happen. But some of the um, the, the major Second Amendment folks are not happy because they, they think this is a pale version of constitutional carry. They want Florida to be an open carry state. Uh, and right now, this is where Florida really is unique. We are only one of three states in the country that prohibit people from openly carrying firearms in the public. And I think, you know, one thing, we should not discount the power of people or the organizations like the Florida Sheriff's Association, which uh, Bob Gautieri here in Pinellas County leads that organization. They are very powerful. And Gautieri does not support open carry. And somehow the legislature, you would think they'd want to respond. You know, this has been a very strong gun rights state over the years. And yet it doesn't seem like they're going to amend that bill to allow for open carry. But permitless carry is the issue that's going on right now. Uh, Lynn, just kind of back to the the sort of criticism from both sides of the aisle here. I think in your reporting, you you refer to a Second Amendment advocate who called this a bait and switch. Talk a little more about that, if you could. Yeah, to Mitch's point, what Governor Ron DeSantis and other legislative leaders have promised a lot of these Second Amendment groups is constitutional carry, which in other states is open permitless carry. You're seeing a lot of Second Amendment groups outside of the National Rifle Association who are very upset. They feel like they've been betrayed. They feel like they've been sold a bill of goods. And they've been very, very vocal about it throughout this process, even from the initial uh, introduction of the bill when lawmakers labeled it constitutional carry, the other groups are saying this isn't that. Mitch, obviously gun safety advocates are not happy with this either. What exactly are they saying about the bill? What are their fears? Well, their fears are that the minimum people should get training, right, which is what is required when you have to apply for a permit. Now, what we've heard in testimony so far, though, is that the training is really not maybe that rigorous, but you know another thing that's come up just in the last week or so since this bill was originally introduced, and, and by the way, uh, Jay Collins, a Republican from Hillsborough County, is, is pushing it in the state Senate, is that they've added a whole new package, uh, a school safety package, if you will, kind of a continuation from what came out with the Parkland uh, uh, legislation five years ago, now allows a guardian program uh, to go to private schools that was previously only for public schools. And Democrats are very hot about this because they support they say they support that's the school safety package, and they think it should be separated from this permitless carry issue. And somehow it's not going to be. It's going to be attached together. And I think there could be, you know, politics at play here where, who knows, maybe in a couple of years from now, ads are running against some of these Democrats saying they voted against a school safety package. Lynn, Republican supermajority this year, it seems like even without the supermajority last session, DeSantis got pretty much everything he wanted. What are the prospects of this bill passing? 
this bill is going to pass, it's likely going to be the first one that lawmakers take up on the floor. Um, It's pretty much a done deal right now. The governor has made the promise. The legislature is backing him up on it. Um, And this is a major piece of legislation either way it goes, regardless of whether it's permitless concealed or permitless open. um, This is going to be Florida's new law going forward. Mitch, let me come back to you. Florida like other states, is facing an affordable housing crisis. In some reporting you've done, housing advocates said people are resorting to living in storage units. Just how bad is the problem in Florida? Well, we really know it here, Matthew, here in the Tampa Bay area, right? We've seen throughout the in all of the major cities, especially this has been pronounced. It's, look, it's, in a, it's a national crisis in many cases, affordable housing, but really in in Tampa, St. Petersburg, Orlando, Miami, Jacksonville. And so, you know, critics have said the state, when when they're doing all these culture war issues the last couple of years, they've ignored one of the most basic fundamental things that that's just, you know, we need help on. And so you do have a major package this year that's introduced. Um, uh, it's called the Live Local, the Live Local Act. And it's a priority of Senate President Kathleen Pasidomo. And it's being sponsored by a Miami Republican. And it's got a lot of stuff in there. It's a very big major package. And I will say that a lot of the housing organizations, such as um, you know Habitat for Humanity and the like, they they are supportive of this. Initially, when I did my some of my first reporting on this, they were a lot of those groups were just there's a lot to look at with it, uh, and so they were they were trying to get their hands around it. But they do think that because this is funding, I think this is over seven hundred million dollars in funding. So this is a serious attempt. Now you've heard some of the criticism has come from Democrats who who are objecting to the fact that it. It eliminates completely uh, any type of rent stabilization or rent control allowances by local communities. What you've seen here in our local communities of the last year is the demand in Tampa and St. Petersburg for local city councils to call for that, to call for rent control. And the current law does allow for that. It's very narrowly tailored, but if you can call it a, an emergency housing emergency, you can declare a rent controls for about a year or so. Uh, so Tampa and St. Pete, they both declined to do it because they felt like they were going to get sued. Uh, Orange County actually put it on the ballot and they did approve it, but it's already in litigation right now. So it's not the most efficient way to really handle this, yet it's a tool that that is available. And that would go away completely if this legislation passes, which uh, it likely will. Lynn, what does affordable housing and the affordable housing crisis look like in Tallahassee and North Florida? By some estimates, Tallahassee is now more expensive to live in than Jacksonville. So it touches every single part. Developers have long said that, you know, it actually costs them more money to build affordable housing units than it costs them to build three hundred and four hundred thousand dollar homes. And so you have a growing discrepancy across the state, which is a lot of the housing that's currently being built is out of reach for middle income families. And we're not talking low income families. We're talking police officers, firefighters, teachers, EMS. That's how severe our housing crunch is. Um, And it's been decades in the making. One of the things that we don't talk about enough, I think, is what's happened to the Sadowski Trust Fund, 
which is a pot of state money that is actually supposed to be spent on affordable housing for the past decade or so. The state has consistently rerouted that money to other things and a couple years ago gave it a permanent reduction. And so this housing shortage that we're seeing right now is compounded by our failure to really keep up in investing in affordable housing. And so you're seeing that problem compound in so many different communities. You also have to look at the fact that a lot of housing stock has been wiped out due to some really severe storms in recent years. And so our problem is not just of economics, our problem is also one of nature. On the Sadowski Fund too, Lynn, if I could just come back to that for a moment. To your point, it's been reduced, it's a lot slimmer than it was. Is there still a risk though that lawmakers could sweep that fund and spend the money on things other than housing, which has been the criticism in the past? There's always that risk. I think one of the things that um, the Senate president is pushing is that she is really, really, really trying to shore up the Sadowski Trust. And so what lawmakers are going to be looking at is to kind of how to make better use of that trust fund, I think, in a way that they have not done in the recent past. She has made that a priority because, again, that trust fund was at one point the state's primary vehicle for ensuring that we had enough housing Um, for people who, again, middle-income families, really, who've ultimately been priced out over the past years. And you mentioned developers, too. Is there much in this bill that's been put forward that would make it a better deal or a more attractive proposition for developers to build more affordable housing? Oh, yeah. So that's really major. Um, Part of this measure is actually helping developers finance some of these properties, giving them some additional tax breaks, giving them some additional leverage and leeway to start building properties that more and more people can afford. And so that's actually part of this live local act. It's a bit of an alliteration there. Um, But it's really a pretty massive bill that touches on different aspects of this housing issue that a bunch of different organizations have long expressed concerns with. So that's in there too. I want to talk about education for a moment. There's been so much news around education in Florida in the last six to 12 months. Lynn Hatter, before we get into some of the bills, I wonder if we could just talk broadly about what's happening in that landscape and how much the educational landscape has changed, what it's meant for students and teachers, both K through 12 and in higher education. Sure. So we're seeing a lot of work in this area. Um, In higher education, what it looks like is that colleges, uh, public colleges and universities are likely not going to be able to offer certain programs and certain majors to their students. The governor, during his inaugural address, uh, talked about combating this this idea of a woke ideology. And now he's sort of putting that into action. There's a bill that's been filed that would basically eliminate any major and any program that deals with critical race theory or anything tangential to it. Now, we know that what the definition of critical race theory is versus what people think it is, there's a pretty broad gap in there. And so this has a lot of institutions very much concerned because if you say eliminate this major, what all are we going to eliminate? And so there's a lot of concern 
um, over in that area, you're seeing the ongoing conversation around the future of New College of Florida now that it's had a changeover in its board of trustees, a changeover in its leadership. What is this sort of small liberal arts college um, that has a history of sort of being very quirky, right? What is that going to look like now? A lot of people are watching that. And even on the K through 12 level, you're seeing a lot more conversation about what people can and cannot say and do in a classroom. What are children going to have access to when it comes down to their learning materials, the books they're going to read. You're seeing this kind of stretch really, really, really deep into areas where local officials no longer have as much leeway and as much control over the curriculum that they used to have. And so, you know, what is the curriculum? Historically, the curriculum has been a lot of the stuff that's decided sort of how and what are we going to use to reach the standards that the state has set. Well, now you're having a lot more of that coming from the top down. And so a lot of schools, a lot of teachers, a lot of administrators are really feeling the pressure to adhere to the state's vision of what public education should look like. And that's creating a heck of a lot of tension. One of the bills up for discussion this session is a universal voucher bill. What impact would it have if it were passed? It's major. Um, School choice advocates have been working toward this for, wow, 25 years. Um, It is a long-held goal for a lot of people. What it's going to do is basically make every family in the state um, with a school-age kid eligible to get a education savings account, which a lot of people know of as vouchers. But it also really lifts what that money can be spent on um, because under this, you can use it for private school tuition or you can use it for any sort of education related expense. The concern here is really on that education related expense side, which is, well, jet skis count if I'm in a jet ski class. You know, it's a terrible example, but you've kind of seen these kind of things happening in other states with ESAs. But supporters say, look, the time has come to basically free everyone from this system. Public school is not for every child. And so they are going full steam ahead on this. You have a difference in how much is this going to cost. That's a big, big factor. The House just came out with an estimate that says this expansion is going to only cost the state about $209 million dollars. Keep in mind, there are nearly 3 million kids still in public schools here. The Independent Florida Policy Institute is like, this is going to cost us $4 billion. That is a really big gap. And the looming danger here is not, is this good or bad? That's not no longer the conversation, right? Because we have school choice. The conversation is, if we don't get this number right, we could be looking like a place like Arizona, which budgeted a lot less originally and its costs came in to the point where they're talking about how do we scale it back, possibly even repealing it because it is massive. Florida is a state that's 10 times bigger than Arizona. And so what are the financials gonna look like here?
That was Mitch Perry, who covers politics and government for the Florida Phoenix, and WFSU News Director Lynn Hatter. We spoke via Zoom. You can find a longer version of that conversation on our website, wsfnews.org. And that's Florida Matters for this week. Join us next Tuesday morning at 10 for live special coverage of Governor DeSantis's State of the State Address. Ahead of DeSantis's speech, we want to hear your take on the state of Florida, what's working and what needs to change. Let us know what your priorities are and what you want your elected representatives to focus on this legislative session. Call and leave a message and we'll discuss your questions and comments with our expert guests. Call 800-444-4193, that's 800-444-4193, or tweet us at Florida Matters. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.